0: Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they might shape how we think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I am one of the principal investigators of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life Project, which, along with this podcast, is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. In today's episode, titled Meaning, Murder, and Divine Madness, I speak with an eminent moral theologian. Father Michael Sherwin about Donna Tartt's breakout bestseller, The Secret History. We discuss how the novel is best situated within both the Southern Gothic and the Southern Catholic Gothic literary genres, and how Donna Tartt, like Flannery O'Connor, understands the task of the novelist as helping us come to see ourselves and our world as it truly is. For good measure, we also discuss demonic possession, mystery cults, religious ecstasy, evil, Augustine Nietzsche, Shakespeare, and Walker Percy. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: This afternoon, we are recording from Freiburg, Switzerland, where I am here with Father Michael Sherwin. Father Michael Sherwin holds the Chair of Fundamental Moral Theology here at the University of Freiburg. He is also the Director of the St. Thomas Aquinas Institute for Theology and Culture, as well as the Archives of Servais Pinkers. He writes about divine charity, among other topics. Welcome back to the podcast, Father Michael. It's great
2: to have you here in Freiburg, and great to be on the podcast once again.
1: Yes, well, it's amazing to be here. So you chose for this episode Donna Tartt's The Secret History. I have to thank you for that because it was a total joy and pleasure to reread this novel. But I just wanted to start out by asking you, to really to invite you to tell our listeners about Donna Tartt.
2: Well, Donna Tartt was a surprising discovery for me. I had been a longtime fan of what many would describe as the Southern, Southern Catholic Gothic Novel tradition, a short story and novel tradition. So writings of people like Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy, but also uh, John Kennedy Toole and even Andre Dubus. So I had read extensively in their work, and someone suggested that I might like Donna Tartt. And a couple things jumped out immediately. In A Secret History, she has the character B from my region of the world in Northern California and has descriptions that are really from my generation. And I discovered later that I'm only about six months older than Donna Tartt, but just to give you an example of some of the things that she portrays, she has a description early on of what it felt like uh, when this character was a schoolboy in this uh, northern California edge of Silicon Valley town. I honestly can't remember much else about those years, A certain except a certain mood that permeated most of them, a melancholy feeling that I associate with watching the wonderful world of Disney on Sunday nights. Sunday was a sad day, early to bed, school the next morning. I was constantly worried my homework was wrong, but as I watched the fireworks go off in the night sky over the floodlit castles of Disneyland, I was consumed by a more general sense of dread of imprisonment within the dreary round of school and home, circumstances which, to me at least, presented sound empirical argument for gloom. Now, something about growing up at that time period, where the promise of the 60s had turned something into the nightmare 70s, describes accurately what that was like on a Sunday night and that those Sunday night dread, the pit in the stomach of having to go to bed early and tomorrow was back to school again, describes something about those years in general. And I relate to that. And it's one of the things that drew me to Walker Percy. Walker Percy writes in the moviegoer and in the second coming, you know, people smile and are nice and the abyss yawns and the niceness is terrifying. And one of the things that Percy does in his writings, especially in Lancelot, And I have a quote from Lancelot, which I think influences Donatard's breakthrough first novel, Secret History. He he says about that atmosphere, for example, part of the atmosphere, uh, the mystery is, what is one to do with oneself? In times like these, when everyone is wonderful, what is needed is a quest for evil. And so this new Lancelot, The new grail is to try to find something that merits a reaction. And that's, I think, why Southern Gothic in general and Southern Catholic Gothic in particular has drawn so many readers. When in 1992, when The Secret History was published, it immediately sold a million copies in the United States alone. It sold very quickly over four million copies, translated into over 20 languages. So it struck a chord and... My way of interpreting it, because the the action takes place in a small liberal arts college in New England, it's what happens when a Southern Gothic character from Mississippi goes to such a school. Now, she she makes the protagonist be a man and from Northern California, but it's uh, Scout Finch goes to New England, small New England college, and what happens? Or better, some other, Flannery O'Connor is the better... It's not Scout Fringe. It's what happens to Flannery O'Connor if she were to go to such a school. Mm -hmm. And something else, Donna Tart is very reluctant to reveal too much for herself, but she did for a Baptist theologian who was at Oxford who published a collection on literature, which is perhaps the the one thing that I can do, the best thing I can do in this podcast is to make this little collection more well-known. Because it's very hard to get and it's published by a small Welsh university. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe those who listen to this podcast can ask their university libraries to stock it because very few do.
1: Well, we'll definitely put the reference up on the
2: blog. Okay. So it's the, the novel, Spirituality and Modern Culture. And it's by Paul Fides. And he is still alive and has become a novelist himself, but has promoted good relations and dialogue between Catholics and Baptists, but also. Uh, about the arts and trying to understand the arts. And for reasons that are that are unknown to me, she agreed to write for that volume. And although the vo- that her own essay is mainly about the process of being a Christian and her view of how inspiration works in the process of writing a novel, she also does a few things in the beginning that I think well describe why I'm drawn to her own writings. She says something about the novel. First of all, she says the novel is a secular form, that if you look at how it emerged by people like Daniel Defoe or Richardson, they're writing at a time when traditional religion seems to be, for the first time in the English-speaking world, called into question. And the novel becomes a a way of addressing moral issues outside the constraints of the traditional religious perspective. And so she says one of the challenges of being a novelist is how, and when you're a believer, is how to be a good novelist within the framework and constraints of a secular genre and still be a believer. But she says that what you're really doing when you're drawn to a novel, you're being drawn to what she says is the spirit which created the novel. And she's got a paragraph that I I can't help but quote. When we are drawn to a novel, what we are really being drawn to is the spirit which created it, its likes and dislikes, its flaws as well as its strengths. If we really love Proust, for instance, we love him for his petulant, slightly spoiled quality, as well as for his lyricism. If we really love P.G. Wodehouse, we love him not only in his spectacular loop the loops but also in his predictable, slightly repetitive moments where he dawdles around like a sweet, short-sighted grandfather who sometimes tells the same story twice. She reveals a lot about herself, even though her character is a man and not from Mississippi, but there's a lot of her, and her experience of being at such a New England liberal arts school. And she brings that whole tradition of Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, to the presuppositions the presumptions, the humanity in all of its uh, joys and brokenness and tragedy. She tells us that it was while she took a year off from school to study Latin that this novel insisted on being writing, written. Her genius, her genie, her, 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 her as she says, her, her demon, the inspiration for the novel came to her while she was supposed to be studying Latin grammar and translating a Latin word. She then was writing that while she's at that school. It's a great roller coaster ride through aspects of undergraduate education among very gifted students and teachers. She sends it all up and it deserves to be sent up. And she does it very, very well. But that also points to something else that she is willing to reveal in this essay about the spirit and writing in a secular world. That's the title of her essay. And it's the challenge to share her vision without becoming preachy or comical unintentionally. And she talks about how those who try to present their vision of life, whether they're Marxists or whether they're Christians, end up doing a very bad job of it. And it ends up being bad literature, novels that are unintentionally either boring or funny. And... Some few geniuses like Dostoevsky, she holds, can pull that off, but most of them can't. Even, she will argue, even Tolstoy and Dickens, who often write masterpieces, on occasion, their attempt to convey a message makes their works become less literature and a little bit boring. So she tries, through indirection, to convey a vision. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast, I'm a big believer in what Conrad describe, and I I originally encountered this quotation in uh, one of the essays of Flannery O'Connor, that the novelist, the task of the novelist is to help us see. Mm -hmm. And best way to answer to your your question, why read Donna Tart, is that she helps us see. And there is something that she helps us see that wouldn't be seen otherwise unless there was a voice like her speaking. And she's also... This was something that Flannery O'Connor had to confront in her, in her essays on, that's been collected in a volume called Mystery and, and Manners. She talks about how great literature, if it's even like great Catholic literature, presupposes Catholic audience. And Donna Tart argues that, especially since the novel is, a, is such a secular form, she's really writing for secular culture. So how do you write great literature to your culture in a way that conveys your vision? You see something that you think is valuable to share. Uh, that's clearly true. And she also argues that the novel as a form is a trying to look at at moral dilemmas uh, and to give a perspective on it in ways that are similar to Flannery O'Connor. They both are fascinated with not Bouleray.
1: Oh, wow. Well, that's Yes, that's a great novel.
2: So they both write about the experience of of reading the work and why the work is important. But Donatart talks about the way the novel functions in a non-religious way to look at these issues that in in the long run are very amenable to a Catholic vision.
1: Right, Um, I agree with that, absolutely. I actually did an episode on, on Madame Bovary, and we sort of talked about how... The novel is about certain pathologies of love. So Flannery O'Connor was very influenced by Jacques Maritain, in particular that book, Art and Scholasticism. And Maritain said that if you want to do Christian art, then what you shouldn't do is take as your topic, like Christianity, you should just make art, but as a Christian, that is to say, you know, with the spirit. With the idea that if you set out with Christianity as the topic, it's probably going to go very badly. (laughs) And you can definitely see respects in which Flannery O'Connor took this advice very seriously. And I kind of wonder if Donna Tartt had a similar approach or a similar vision.
2: Well, she writes what she knows, right? She writes from what she knows. But she talks about the need for indirection. Mm -hmm. And... I think she shares, and I think one of the things uh, that I would like to do someday is to edit a, a collection, uh, because Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, and Donna Tarr have all talked about the tension of being a Catholic and a writer, whether a novelist or a short story writer. And, and a Southerner. And a Southerner. Yeah. And that is a theme that merits being published in one volume. Mm-hmm. To, I agree. And there's a continuity between their reflections. Mm-hmm. And... But it gets back to, I mean, what you were mentioning from Flannery O'Connor and is echoed in a different way in Walker Percy. Although I think Percy, towards the end, as he was dying of cancer, falls prey to the very thing that Donatart says: that if you, if the message becomes, overpowers the, the story, mm-hmm. uh, you run the risk of not being good literature. And I, I are you I,
1: thinking of the Thanatos? Syndrome? Yeah, I think Thanatos syndrome. Yeah.
2: The better portrayal of Thanatos syndrome is his essay "Why Are You a Catholic?" Right. That ex- that explains really what he wants to say in Thanatos syndrome, mm-hmm. syndrome much more clearly, much more accurately. The novel, uh, although it, it brings back characters that I have great affection for, uh, but it's um, it has limitations because yeah. he was writing under a time constraint, uh, mm-hmm. and so he can be forgiven. But I I think that is a he makes that mistake. Yeah, I write as, uh, as a critic, not as a as a novelist. I don't have that gift. Right.
1: Well, that's interesting. That's a little helpful because that is my least favorite Walker Percy novel, and I've never quite been able to identify the reason why. But that seems like a like a good diagnosis. I see a little bit of of Flannery O'Connor in in this novel, in particular, all of the attention that she pays to the eyes, which is such a huge part of Flannery O'Connor's stories. And also, there's a very strong undercurrent of trying to break through distorting appearances to an unpleasant reality. There's sort of this veil of perception, or maybe better described, the veil of self-deception. It's kind of like, what am I willing to see and what am I willing not to see?
2: She gives that away in one of the, you know, each part has a different little uh, quotation. And in towards the end of the novel, she quotes... Um, are you
1: thinking of those epigraphs? Yeah, the
2: epigraphs that are sometimes classical, sometimes from uh, literature, sometimes from uh, history. And one of the epigraphs talks about the Dionysian uh, mm-hmm. spirit and so it says here find it talking about that one of the things that Dionysius does is to is to deceive you is to make uh, to draw you into a world of appearances right and I think that's a theme throughout the entire novel I do as well but we should probably get if we want to get back to the, the affinities between Percy and she so if Lancelot from, from the novel Lancelot is on a quest a new quest, a new grail quest, but this time for evil. She's on a quest that is as equally ironical, but it's expressed in early on in the novel, and it's on page 39. Once the cups were set out, and Henry had poured the tea, somber as a mandarin, we began to talk about the madnesses induced by the gods. Poetic, prophetic, and finally, Dionysian. And you can make the argument that if this novel really is within the Southern Catholic, Gothic tradition, this whole novel is an attempt to see what would happen if very gifted Americans who have studied Greek, studied the classics, given the the best of 20th century education, what would happen if they would try to resurrect the Bacchanal uh, and to bring invite Dionysius back? And you could maybe say that that is what unconsciously or in many different ways American culture, especially viewed from the Mississippi, what East Coast elite culture has been trying to do for a very long time. But... In the setting of New England elite culture writ small, that is, this small liberal arts college, what would happen? And her answer is a very Augustinian answer. In the City of God, especially in Book 7, Augustine talks about how the Romans thought that they were worshipping the gods. And they even were given truths, real truths about the future, from these beings that they were worshiping thinking that they were the gods and he says, well actually they were demons and it they were being told truths but that they were actually led to their destruction and all their also their their moral deformation. and he points to the ways in which the uh, Roman public worship was linked to theater and the gods wanted these, Uh, very deranged uh, reproductions of uh, immoral behavior that was already an embarrassment to uh, the senatorial class of Romans. So she gives a very Augustinian answer to what would happen if you resurrected Bacchanal. You bring on the demons, and the demons' response to everything is to deceive us, even in the telling of of truths, and to lead to murder. Now, if Walker Percy's behind the scenes, There's someone else a little bit more venerable in the Western tradition, and that is the author of the Scottish play. That is, Shakespeare is behind the scenes here, too. Mm -hmm. And Shakespeare is also in the Scottish play, um, very much drawing upon the city of God. And I want to use the very beginning. He sets out at the beginning of Act 1, Scene 2 of Macbeth. He says, you know, Macbeth's companion says to him, And oftentimes, to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with horrible trifles to betrays in the deepest consequence. So we're forewarned at the outset of Macbeth that the witches are going to tell truths, but it's going to lead to murder, and it's going to lead to the ultimate destruction of Macbeth and and Lady Macbeth. There is something similar going on in a secret history that these very gifted, very talented and representative figures, American elite culture, are led to a kind of either literal destruction and death or a kind of psychological disintegration. But it is a Southern Catholic Gothic and Flannery O'Connor in one of her essays talks about that there is a desire in the midst of the confrontation with the grotesque. I should say that I've been using a term that I haven't defined. So Southern Catholic Gothic, you will have a hard time finding that on the Internet, but Southern Gothic is all over. And one of the representatives is Flannery O'Connor, but she is uniquely different. And in some schools of of literature, she'll be portrayed as being belonging to Southern Gothic, but as a subsection of it, as Southern Catholic Gothic. But Southern Gothic... Is drawn to, uh, I looked at different attempts to define it. I think drawing upon many of them, this is what I came up with. Southern Gothic is a subgenre of Gothic fiction in American literature that takes place in the American South. Common themes in Southern Gothic literature include deeply flawed, disturbing, or eccentric characters placed in decayed or derelict settings, grotesque situations, and other sinister events relating to or stemming from poverty, alienation, crime, or violence. Or, as Walker Percy uh, summed up, it comes from having lost the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Now, the term was originally uh, invented as a uh, pejorative and dismissive term and applied uh, to people like William Faulkner in the 30s, and then later on Carson McClure's, and to Flannery O'Connor herself. And the, the critic who invented the term in 35 talked about a Southern Gothic school, stating that their work was filled with aimless violence and fantastic nightmares. So it's now since become kind of... The term Southern Gothic has become uh, domesticated and has been used even to describe the work, uh, to her horror, of people like Eudora Welty or uh, Alice Walker. But I think in its early roots, the Southern Catholic version... Uh, of the gothic is still much more pronounced and the, the common thread is that we've become domesticated, we've become like wingless birds and there is a way in which we've lost our ability, our sensitivity to see or to experience the workings of God and the workings of grace. And so you have to put people in situations where they encounter real evil or they encounter the really grotesque. So and it forces them to take a good look at some of the shibboleths or some of the things they take for granted in their culture. When uh, the young girl, who's probably the most autobiographical character of Flannery O'Connor, encounters the disturbing events of genetic malformation in, in the freak show, she's confronted it to, to, takes, to encounter what it really means in her catechism class Uh, to be described as a temple of the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. And the physical deformations are nothing as compared to the spiritual deformations. And this young girl who's been teasing and mocking her cousins and all the rest in that short story is confronted by what it really means for God to make us of all things temples of his presence. And so the, the common theme through Southern Gothic is Southern Catholic Gothic is that it is through the violent, through the grotesque, through the unexpected, that runs through human life, but we we try to not see it. Mm. Um, But on occasion, we're confronted with it, and we can't avoid it.
1: Right. I think described in that way, this is then a perfect example of this genre, because the entire story unfolds. It's a kind of unmasking. So the narrator... Is the one who, in the end, is is willing to see or is able to see, whichever is the better choice of words there. And he's con- contrasted with this character who who is the character who draws him into this whole mess to begin with, and that is this classics teacher Julian, who has a very strange pedagogical style, who only has this small group of students. You know, what does he always say to them? Are we ready to leave the world and and transcend to the sublime. And when Julian is confronted finally with the incredibly unpleasant reality of what has happened, like what his teaching has produced in these Mm -hmm. students, he runs away from it. He wants to have nothing to do with this. When she describes at various points these characters when they're starting to unravel when things are unraveling when they're unraveling and she describes their eyes she describes their eyes as blind mm-hmm. hollow like they can't see and the narrator richard is the only one who finally can see and what does he see he sees that what they've done is evil
2: and but he he sees in hindsight yeah i i think a good a good uh, passage that addresses what you're describing is on 199, and it's a key moment where he has been let in on what has happened. Because the Richard narrator character is, he's kind of like a Charles Ryder in uh, American form.
1: Absolutely, he Uh, is, yeah. So
2: he's on the outside looking in, Uh and he's riding along Uh on the outskirts. But at one moment, they let him in on what what has been the result of the attempt to resurrect the Bacchanal, the Dionysian madness. And they also begin to see where this is going to lead, because as often happens, as happens in Macbeth, one murder, one good murder, leads to another. And so he says here, it's funny, but thinking back on it now, I realize that this particular point in time, as I stood there blinking, in the deserted hall, was the one point at which I might have chosen to do something very different from what I actually did. But of course, I didn't see this critical moment, then, for what it was. I suppose we never do. Instead, I only yawned and shook myself from the momentary daze that had come upon me, and went on my way down the stairs. Well, that's just a marvelous passage. Mm -hmm. But you see the descent of the, the person's character. And yet he realizes in hindsight that he's just kind of slipped into it, that many other things had prepared him to not see, as the Greeks would say, the critical present moment. He doesn't do the kalos in the kairos, and that's in some ways a very common blindness it would be fun to do a podcast with uh, with miss tart herself because i can't imagine what it was like for her at that period as coming from mississippi to wind up in that in that new england situation and to have a vision that others don't see right. and to have that vision and feel the isolation that comes from seeing what others don't and i think it's very funny the way in which classicists have responded, some classicists I should say, have responded to this novel because I think they miss that she's not really talking about classicists. She's talking about a certain sliver of a very influential sliver of American society and what it leads to. Mm -hmm. And the professor who has this influence on them, well you, you can let the reader try to discern what does he really represent and Everyone, I think, is representative in there of other things that are larger in the concrete, very well-developed characters.
1: Well, what is it that Julian represents? He's sort of this impossibly patrician, elite if you sort of think of the caricature of the professor where the oriental rugs and the fancy teacups and he well, they're speaking in greek and latin with one another and there's this tremendous divorce from reality like there are all these funny scenes where like he's amazed at cocoa puffs <laughs> like anything modern i mean what what is it that he's supposed to represent do you think
2: again she's sending up her experience of being in that school uh, there are no classical professors like that. Yeah. No. So I mean, they don't. Their salaries <laughs> wouldn't allow them. They'd have to be independently wealthy, I guess. But, and
1: he is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But
2: I think he represents one way in which the East Coast establishment views itself. And if you are, and I think we're living through this in many ways. I think you can explain why our politics has gone some of the populist turns that it's gone to, is that. Not everyone benefits from a, a certain type of value-neutral celebration of the Bacchanal. Mm-hmm. And he that's what he is, right? He encourages things that he himself doesn't do. Mm-hmm. And he's able, because of the support structure that he himself has, not to suffer any of the consequences. Although, of course, he does. But not in the way that the world judges things.
1: Yeah, he's such an interesting character to me. I guess just to pick up on the the Walker Percy theme, what's really clear from the beginning, and especially with the introduction of the main character, Richard, is that, um, you know, Richard is sort of growing up in a landscape and has a life that is evacuated of all meaning. Hmm. Like there's no, like he discusses his hometown as, as dispensable as a plastic cup. There's no tradition he's born into. There's nothing in his life that he can grab onto that has meaning and is going to give his life value. Mm -hmm. And of course, as he's being introduced in this way, he says, or he tells us that his tragic flaw is a morbid longing for the picturesque. And this is how he ends up in this, you know, impossibly quaint Vermont town at this liberal arts college, is he has this brochure that came in the mail and so pretty, and he fills it out on a whim. And again, it's kind of like it's this very shallow attraction to appearances. Mm. There's no deep foundation to any of it. So he gets there, and he's like searching for meaning. Mm. And this group of of kids that he starts—well, they're not kids; they're young adults—but that he falls into, they also are like searching for meaning. They're not finding anything mm. except. And a culture so far removed, it seems very exotic, mm. right? They have this teacher that's talking about beauty and terror and sacrifice and the sublime and all of this stuff. But it, it's this completely backward-looking, nostalgic, grasping.
2: Well, I think you you put your finger on something that I think we mentioned in the other podcast about the uh, one aspect of the California experience. And there was a, a memoir that was written by a gentleman who grew up in Silicon Valley and now when I was growing up I mean we we were about also about the same age but like for example my mother's generation it's just the San Francisco Peninsula Mm -hmm. and in those days it was little villages that they grew between the villages there were vegetables and orchards between San Jose and San Francisco it's only with Sputnik with the, the star that led all of these post-World War II engineers from the Midwest to move into the area between San Francisco and San Jose and the areas around Los Angeles to, uh, with lots of federal funding, get engineering jobs. They are living in very, very new homes. They're cut off from their roots in the Midwest, what roots there were, but there were immigrant roots there with religious culture. And these this new engineering culture that was salvation through techne raised a group of young people who do feel Mm rootless, and he's looking for as you say the picturesque and at one point he says i made the mistake of trying to believe that those who are interesting are also good and so yes he doesn't see and yet he's looking he's on a search for meaning but he he doesn't see what is really around him Mm -hmm. and i think i'm not sure about this this may be a stretch but i I also see dance to the music of time and some of the kind of rootless searching that is in the character that Anthony Pohl develops in those 12 novels. If she, if Donna Tart is a fan of Proust, then maybe uh, she's also a fan of the English Proust, uh, Anthony Pohl. But it's like Anthony Pohl's characters. There's an emptiness and they are outsiders. Trying to understand. But I think as Donna Tart, she arrives with a vision and she wants us to see that there is a difference between good and evil and an encounter with evil can push you towards a desire to be close to the good. Mm -hmm. And so the novel ends on Ash Wednesday.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Recovering a sense of a journey. And that's another theme in Southern Catholic Gothic. The awareness that we are pilgrims. Mm -hmm. The awareness that we are viatores, and that this world is not the only world. And that, as Flannery O'Connor will say, that Southern literature is not about Christ, or that the South is not necessarily Christian, but it is Mm Christ-haunted. And uh, the fact of having lost the war allows them to have a recognition that they are living amongst the rubble of something. Mm -hmm. And there is a desire, there's only two ways that that can go. If you're living among the rubble, you can look backward for an attempt to recreate an ideal past. Mm-hmm. But if you do that, you also have to falsify something about the present, especially the black experience in the South. They're not looking back to the past as if it was some great ideal time. Right. And so you then have to look to the future and what that might entail.
1: Right. Well, there's this epigraph um, to the epilogue where she talks about the ruins of his youth, um, but these are like the ruins of those ruins, um, right? And so who, who's who is
2: the person being quoted?
1: John Ford.
2: So this is a one of the the terrible the that literature, and he, he she actually lets us she a little bit lets the cat out of the bag and runs the risk herself of becoming a bit preachy. But I guess it's because she wasn't sure whether we would know enough about the Jacobean dramatists to get her point. But in the Jacobean dramatists, there's blood flowing all over the place. Mm-hmm. These are violent tragedies mm-hmm. that reveal that yeah, life is short uh, and uh, brutish and, and bloody. And Marlowe, Christopher Marlowe, who, uh, unlike Shakespeare, who you can try to present as being an admirable fellow, it's very hard to present Marlowe as an admirable fellow.
1: No, he wasn't.
2: And so she she introduces this, that quote from Ford, who's one of the Jacobean dramatists, along with Webster Middleton, and Middleton and and Marlowe. It's revealing that there is something tragic, and the only way to get out of the tragic is the discovery not of human comedy, but of the divine comedy. Mm. And that's a very old theme in, in, in English literature. Mm. I think the... Greatest expression of it is in Chaucer, even greater than Shakespeare. But it's not popular to say that because, in the evolutionary theory, uh, everything has to go towards a Renaissance drama mm-hmm. and, or I should say, Baroque drama because Shakespeare is really a Baroque author. And so, somehow, uh, uh, Shakespeare has to be uh, more developed than Chaucer. And, um, uh, and clearly, on many ways, as in terms of language and other things, he is. But on Certain elements of vision, especially if we want to say that the, the job of the literature is to help us to see, Chaucer helps us to see more deeply on some things than Shakespeare does. And especially about the way in which the human tragedy, the only way out, if you're not going to try to develop a kind of stoic sadness that the Romans did develop, and another podcast would be good to do, it would be John Williams and the works of John Williams, because I think he's our greatest Horatian, tragic, lyric novelist. But if you're not going to take that route, which is admirable and beautiful, the other is to rediscover the divine comedy mm-hmm. and that our tragedy, we get out of the bloodiness of the, of the Jacobean uh, tragedians through rediscovering that God has done something for us that brings redemption, salvation, out of what appears to be possible. And as she, as Flannery O'Connor says, there's a desire for that in all novels There's a somehow an expression, those who read novels, they want there to be somehow salvation, redemption from the situation that's been very accurately painted by the Gothic scene. And that's why it's appropriate for the novel to end uh, with Ash Wednesday and a desire to be in contact with that act that turns the human tragedy into a divine comedy, which is the the cross, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that is made present every day in the most simple way in the Eucharist, bread and wine.
1: Well, that's so interesting because it opens up the space for talking about a contrast between two different sort of death and rebirth scenes in the novel. So there's the death and rebirth of Henry, mm-hmm. and this has a very kind of dark Nietzschean <laughs> aspect to it. So...
2: And Nietzsche is a presence in the novel. Nietzsche
1: is definitely a presence. I mean, I think the birth of tragedy is is, is all over this thing. But when Henry is telling Richard, and, and Henry is, I don't know what this is about me, but Henry is hands down my favorite character in this novel. <laughs> Sorry. Well, he, he is the obsession. No,
2: he, he is the obsession of the narrator.
1: Yeah, well, he, yeah. I mean, rightfully so. He sort of commands your attention. They do this I mean, whatever it is that they do, it's never made totally explicit. It's pretty weird. (laughs) But he ends up killing this Vermont farmer. And when he describes it to Richard, it really is a kind of rebirth. He's a new person now. But he's sort of like the Nietzschean, Ubermensch now. He says, you know, that murdering this innocent farmer, it enabled me to do what I've always wanted most, to live without thinking. This is doubly Nietzschean because, of course, it's like losing yourself and letting the kind of just will to power take over. And, you know, Henry also talks about stepping outside of time and into eternity. He sort of sees himself as this kind of, I don't know, very powerful, almost immortal godlike figure now, which of course doesn't end well for him. But it, it also reminded me again And I'm so glad you brought this up because I thought reading it that I saw Walker Percy everywhere, but then I thought maybe I was crazy. But, you know, it's all over Walker Percy's novels and his essays and his philosophy where he talks about why it's so appealing to us to lose ourselves, to lose our sense of self and how like... All of these stupid things that we do, we do to lose ourselves because he talks about the problem of the self and why it's so hard to negotiate life with yourself. I think there are these deep things in her, but there's the contrast between Henry's rebirth and then the possibility of Richard's rebirth at Mm -hmm. the end, where maybe there's hope for him. Maybe it's not a tragedy.
2: Because he's drawn along to go to... The the other two survivors want to re, want to go to communion. It says that's right, and he he and goes talk along. About sin. He goes along, mm-hmm. yeah. And your description of Henry brings me back. And I again, I'm a Californian, and I admit entirely to being um, rooted in place. But she herself talks about her admiration for Jack London, and Jack London is someone who also, I think, in the end. Fails because he becomes too. He wants to proclaim the message too much. Mm-hmm. But one of the first attempts in American literature to portray the Nietzschean Ubermensch is Wolf Larsen in Seawolf, mm-hmm. and the protagonist in Seawolf reminds me a little bit about, of Richard. And it, but I think there's a critique of Seawolf because in the end, the only way he's trying to find a way, London is drawn to the Nietzsche character. And yet the Nietzsche character is going to you know, kill the person that London most resembles. So how do you overcome it? He tries to portray, and it fails as a work of fiction, but he tries to f- portray the overcoming of Wolf Larson through the romantic 19th century notion of, of love between these two characters that meet by chance on board the ship and who know of each other's work, and they're both literary types and all the rest, and it, it, it doesn't work. And so it's not by accident that there is sewn into the novel, a, I think, a, a swipe against a certain tradition that is also part of the Southern Catholic Gothic, which is that you can somehow save the day without the cross of Christ. The Last Gentleman... I, I agree with uh, John O'Callaghan, Professor John O'Callaghan at Notre Dame, that the person that is presented in The Last Gentleman, Will Barrett, is the presentation of the classic southern gentleman without Christ. And it fails as a as a redemptive solution on its own. It has to have something else. And so she says here, one likes to think that there is something in it, the old platitude, amor vincit omnia, that love conquers all. Yeah. But if I'd learned one thing in my short, sad life, it is that that particular platitude is a lie. Love doesn't conquer everything. And whoever thinks it does is a fool. So that's a rejection of of London's attempt to say how you can overcome Wolf Larsen. In the end, nature overcame Wolf Larsen and Seawolf. And London knew that. And he's left... Attempting to salvage it with romantic love and it doesn't work. And of course, London himself, it didn't save him either. Mm-hmm. So I it's think
1: romantic love rarely saves anyone
2: on its own, right? On its own. It's a sign. It's not a, it's not a savior. It's a sign of the savior, but it's not a savior. Right. And she's, so there's a lot in this novel. And I think it is well worth the read, especially because like Percy and Flannery O'Connor, it is a roller coaster ride, a fun read sending up aspects of American education, but it also is terrifying.
1: Yes, it's simultaneously hilarious and terrifying. Yes. But it, it is. It is a it is a page turner. So we've been talking so much about all of these Southern Catholic writers, and I'm convinced that she's in this tradition, but it does leave you with this very perplexing question why is the narrator from Northern California? Because <laughs> Someone from Mississippi, a Mississippi Catholic, would have been just as exotic.
2: Well, I don't think so. Why not? He needed to be someone like like Charles Ryder. He needed to be a blank page.
1: Oh, too much history and tradition. In There's the
2: too much. It, it, you you can't. It would not have been a believable Mississippian who had the uh, test scores to get into that school. They would be too rich in history. Mm-hmm. They would be too rich like she herself was when she was at that school. Yes. But a tabula rasa, well-educated in a kind of white bread emptiness mm-hmm. that you can discover in certain Silicon Valley neighborhoods, mm-hmm. that's true to life. Okay. And that's, she discovered, you know, of course it was painful for me to read that, but that, that does exist in the, between San Francisco and San Jose, especially in certain neighborhoods I won't name, uh, east of L.A., and that's a product of the American experience that she brings in. But he was the foil that was needed because he's empty enough to play the role he needed to play.
1: So we're getting close to running out of time. Is there any kind of final thought you have about this novel?
2: Well, I think it's a, also, I want to make a, a publicity note for her second novel, which she returns to something that she also knows, the a small town Mississippi. And the character, is Scout Finch gone to seed? <laughs> and is which
1: novel is this? This is The Little
2: Friend, and it also has a murder, but it's a murder that's never solved. Mm-hmm. And it also sold very well. It's not everyone's favorite, but I think it is also a very, very interesting attempt to look at very similar themes. And then, of course, there's the Goldfinch. Uh, But that's much more recent and maybe for another podcast.
1: Right. Well, thank you so much.
0: You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on the works discussed in today's episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu, and check out our blog, thevirtueblog.com. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, do me a big favor and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.